0: May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're new, I'm Jamie. I am one of the pastors around here, and it is my honor and privilege uh, to invite you to point your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus is the second book in your Bible, If you don't have a Bible with you at church, go ahead and grab one from the pew in front of you, and on the Black Bibles, Exodus 20 is found on page 61. Um, I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 17. We are in a series on the Ten Commandments, and uh, last week we spent some time together looking at the purpose of the Ten Commandments, the background of the Ten Commandments, And today we're going to consider the first commandment, so we'll spend almost all of our time in verse 3, which is five words in the original language, and I will try my best to keep it under 45 minutes. There's so much contained in that commandment. Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy 6 days you shall labor and do all your work but the 7th day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God On it you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Father, would you come now and send your Holy Spirit to give us understanding according to your word as we look at the first commandment, which is the foundation of all the others, and help us to not only understand it, but to see the ways in which it points us to your Son who kept it perfectly in our place. Would you do this for the sake of your people and for the glory of your name in the earth? Amen. We knew space was big. And the James Webb Space Telescope is now revealing to us a little bit more of just how big space is. We are now seeing light from galaxies that appear to be something like five billion light years away. And as you know, light is pretty fast. So if you were standing in pick and you turned on a flashlight, and somehow this light would go all the way around the earth. It would circle the earth seven and a half times every second. That's how fast it is. And if you could travel at the speed of light, which you can't, according to Einstein, but if you could, it would take you five billion earth years to make it to this place that we just saw in a picture. So it's pretty far away. So space is pretty big. Astronomers guess that there's something like 100,000 million stars in the Milky, Milky Way galaxy alone. And that there are one to 200 billion galaxies, give or take. We don't know. It's a lot. There are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth by a considerable margin. So in light of all of that, the bigness of space, the mass, massiveness of space, I want you to just think about how the Bible opens. The Bible opens with this camera lens infinitely wide on God himself who is creating all that is. And then the camera zooms in really fast, really, really, really in on one planet and a man and a woman in a garden. We get one or two verses that tell us how God created the universe, we get a chapter and a half on how God created that man and that woman. Why is this? Does God not care about the rest of the universe? Of course not. It's just that there is something central to the story that God is telling about Himself that is contained in the relationship of that man and that woman. Now, not that man particular and that woman particular, but the relationship between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Because we find out later in the Bible that the relationship of the man and the woman in the covenant of marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And the way that a husband is to his wife is the way that Christ is to his church. And the way that a wife is to her husband is the way that the church is to Christ. Ray Ortland picks up on this theme in his book on spiritual adultery, where he writes insightfully, the gospel reveals that as we look out into the universe, ultimate reality It's not cold, dark, blank space. Ultimate reality is romance. You see, God has united himself to his people in a relationship that is akin to marriage. And for this reason, in the scriptures, the theme of idolatry is often interwoven with the theme of adultery. When God's people give their allegiance and their worship to someone or something other than the God of the universe, to God, this is not only idolatry, but adultery. Right relationship with God and to God is the essence of the first commandment. The Puritan Thomas Watson called the first commandment the foundation of all true religion. And Martin Luther wrote that where the heart is rightfully disposed toward God and this commandment is observed, all the others follow. So in one sense, the first commandment is the foundation of all of the others. And the other nine commandments are an exposition of the first commandment. So when you break the first commandment, all the other commandments follow. If you keep the nine commandments, you keep the first commandment. Really, all of the law is an explanation of how to keep the first commandment. So what is the first commandment? Well, we just read it. Have no other gods before me. A rather simple sentence, right? Maybe not. So here's what we'll do this morning. We'll first define the first commandment. And then we'll discover the ways in which we have all broken the first commandment. And then, finally, we'll see the way in which Christ fulfilled and kept the first commandment. So if you're taking notes, here's our outline this morning. Idolatry defined, idolatry discovered, and idolatry defeated. Idolatry defined, idolatry discovered, and then idolatry defeated. I worked hard this week to come up with a clever sentence that summarizes everything that I wanted to say in this message about idolatry and the first commandment. And as I was praying this week about what that might be, something popped into my head, kept popping into my head. First John chapter five, verse twenty-one, which is simple: little children, keep yourselves. From idols. So that's a way better way of saying what I was trying to come up with on my own. That's the big idea this morning. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So idolatry defined, idolatry discovered, idolatry defeated. So what is the first commandment? That's where we'll start. and from There we'll look at verses 2 and 3 again. Exodus 20, verse 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, there's something that you should know about the Ten Commandments. And that is that there is always a photo negative of every commandment. So if the commandment is in the negative, like thou shalt not, then the positive thou shall is implied. You get that, right? So, where the commandment is, eight of the commandments are negative, thou shalt not, and when, when you read thou shalt not, you should also understand that to be saying thou shalt, right? So, one of the commandments says, thou shalt not lie, bear false witness. So, that also means what? Thou shalt tell the truth, yes. So, there's a photo negative of each one of these, and the, the first commandment is no different. It also is in the negative, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. But the positive of it, of course, then would be, only have one God. So, the the first commandment is these two things. Worship God and worship nothing else. Worship God and worship nothing else. Well, remember I said that uh, the relationship between God and His People is a bit like the relationship between a a man and a wife in the covenant of marriage. You, You see this kind of thing in the language that we use in our wedding vows. So what do you say in a wedding vow? Forsaking all others I keep to thee. Okay? Worship God only and worship God only. Okay? Two things. Same two things. So the first commandment is five words in Hebrew. And these five words reject both atheism and polytheism full stop, all at once. So atheism that the, fact, the the belief that there is no God, polytheism, the belief that there are many gods, both are rejected by this commandment. "You shall have no other gods before me." This is why I wanted to read verses two and three together. You see, it's not just that God was calling Israel to worship no other gods. God is also calling them to worship Him alone. So you will notice in verse 3, there's the word other. No, other gods. And I will tell you, that is the most difficult part of the first commandment. That little word other, as we will see. When God delivered His people out of slavery in Egypt, if you've read the story before, God pours out ten plagues upon the Egyptians. And these, by the way, weren't just like 10 random judgments that God chose. He wasn't up in heaven to be like, I don't know, send them bugs or something. These were particular judgments issued against the gods of Egypt. So the Egyptians, they worshiped the god of the Nile. And you notice God turned the Nile into blood. Some of the Egyptian gods appeared with the head of a frog. And so God sent an army of frogs. Another god was the god of the soil, and out of the soil came lice that got all over everything. One of them was the goddess of health, and what did God do? He plagued them with boils and sores. So you get it. God is proving to the Egyptians and to the Israelites that there is one god who is sovereign over all. So the first commandment forbids the worship of anyone or anything other than the one true God. And so much of the Old Testament is taken up with God's people struggling to keep the first commandment. And most of that struggle, as I said before, is with that word, other. No other gods. You know, Israel rarely abandoned the worship of Yahweh. Most of their problem was worshiping Yahweh alone. God would regularly discipline His people because they would worship other gods, not at the exclusion of Him, but in addition to Him. And so you might be wondering, why is this God like this? Like, why is God acting like some insecure girlfriend. Always checking Snapchat to see where her boyfriend is. Freaking out because he went to the movies with his friends and there was a girl there texting him, did did you sit next to her? What was she wearing? That kind of thing. Is God some kind of insecure girlfriend? Well, God is not insecure. By his demand of exclusive worship of his people. The reason that God demands exclusivity in his people is because, well, it goes back to Dr. Ortland's statement from before, of the vastness of space being about romance. Our God is a personal God. He loves, he sets his love on his people, and God's love for his people demands their exclusive worship, their exclusive devotion. Because it's like a husband in love with a wife. He would never be happy sharing her with another man. Not if he's in love with her. And most especially if he knows that that man is abusing her. Can I encourage you to take some time this afternoon to read Ezekiel chapter 16? A word of warning, though, before you do, it is a rather graphic chapter in your Bible, perhaps one of the more graphic ones. But it will provide to you a clear picture of the way in which God views idolatry among His people. God's people are precious to Him. And his love for them is for their good. And these false gods cannot give anything to her. They only ever take things from her. And so his jealousy over her is not like that of an insecure girlfriend. No, it's a, it would be more like a father's love for his teenage daughter who's dating a sex trafficker. That's why he demands her exclusive worship. God forbids the worship of anyone or anything other than him because no one or no thing can give what only God can give. Idols aren't real. There is only one God. All the other gods are imaginary. They're man-made. So they can't speak. And they can't save, and they can't protect, and they can't provide. They have to be saved. They have to be protected. They have to be maintained. They're man-made. Through the prophets, God would sometimes make fun of his people for turning to idols for help. Isaiah chapter 44 is one great example of this. God is mocking his people. If you read it, it's a rather comical chapter, actually. He's sort of like, hold up a second. Little man needs a house so him doesn't get rain on his head. So him cuts down one of my trees and he forms it into a house and he has a house. But him gets cold. So him takes more of my trees and him makes a fire with him trees. And then he says, ah, now I'm warm. And then he takes some of the other parts of him's trees and he cuts it up into little pieces. And he shapes it real nice and he sands it real nice to make it look like him. And then he bows down to it and says, you are my God, save me. And God is saying to his people, that's dumb. That great big oak couldn't give you rain. It needed rain. And when it was alive, you cut it down and killed it. What do you think? Now it's going to give you rain? That's dumb. Idolatry is dumb. Carving up a hunk of wood putting it on the mantle of your house, gluing it down so it doesn't fall over in a stiff wind, and then asking it for things? You shall have no other gods before me because there is no other God before me. There is only God. Only God gives life. Only God provides rain for food, pasture for cattle, fertility for sheep. Only God protects from danger and disease. We're real fancy here in the 21st century. We can predict... If a tornado might form. And I'm thankful for that. But we can't do anything about it. We might be able to anticipate when a tsunami hits the shore, but we can't stop it. Only God says this far and no more. Only God can. There is one God. Worship Him only. That's the first commandment. And so here is your working definition. If you're taking notes, here is your working definition for what is idolatry. What is the first commandment? Here is idolatry. Idolatry is looking to anyone or anything other than God to give you what only God can give you. Idolatry is looking to anyone or anything to give you what only God can give you. And that puts it in somewhat of a different category for us, doesn't it? Because that means, if that's true, then that means idolatry is not exclusive to people with sticks and stones and bones through their nose. Idolatry is not exclusive to people who make totems of gold and silver and wood and stone. It's more than dancing around fires and asking for buffalo and rain. It's not less than that, but it's much more than that. Ezekiel chapter 14 speaks of the idols that are in our hearts Not the external ones that we can touch with our hands. But the ones that exist on the inside. So this brings us then to the second point. Idolatry discovered. How have we failed to keep the first commandment? Well, if you notice there in verse 3. The Bible says, You shall have no other gods before me. Another word, before, could mean like in front of me and before my face. But it could also mean above me. You cannot have any other gods more important than me, more superior to me. And I think both senses are in view here. There is one God. And that one God is the only God who deserves the place of first place in our life. And if you want to discover idolatry in your own heart, meditate long upon those two words, before me. Author, Pastor Tim Keller will help you in this. He wrote a book some years ago called Counterfeit Gods, and I recommend this to you. What is an idol, Keller writes? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything so central to your life that if you lost it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Or in other words... Someone or something that you're looking to, to give you what only God can give you. Something that occupies a controlling position in your life. So how do you know if something has become an idol in your heart? One place you can look, ironically, is your nightmares. Nightmares. Our fears reveal a lot about the idols in our heart. What is something that occupies such a place in your life that the mere thought of losing it would cause you to come unhinged? That if you lost it, you would feel a, a, a sense of, without direction. You would feel aimless if you find that thing, you've met your idol, one of them. So boots on the ground, what does this look like? What does idolatry look like to the modern man? Well, think about what, what you want out of life. Perhaps you want influence. Good thing to want, you want to make a difference. Maybe you want recognition. You want to be recognized for making a difference. It could be control. You want want things to kind of go according to your plan. Predictability. It could be comfort. Maybe you're looking for comfort out of life. It could be acceptance. It could be approval. And none of these things are necessarily wrong things. None of them. As long as we recognize that these are all things that only God can give to us. It's just that when we look for something else other than God to give us those things, we become idolaters. So, an idol can be about anything. Anything that becomes more fundamental to your happiness and to your security than god anything that becomes more fundamental to your sense of well-being of comfort of happiness of joy of peace anything more fundamental than god and it's a rather simple formula the more you think about it the formula starts to show up it's, really, it's real simple. God plus X equals the good life happiness, comfort, safety, control. God and this thing gives me the good life that I want. Remember, I said in verse three, the biggest, most difficult thing about this verse is the word other? That's the X. God plus something else, something other than God, gives me the good life. And you see, here's what's tricky about it. Often, an idol is a good thing. It's a good thing that we turn into a God thing. Something good, like family. Family's a good thing. But family can become an idol when we turn it into something that we need to have in order to feel secure and significant. And that if I didn't have it, I wouldn't feel worth living. I wouldn't feel significant. It could be a good thing like a career. Chasing a sense of significance and approval and acceptance from business, from business success. We want influence. We want recognition. And that's not wrong. But if we seek to squeeze it out of our work, it's idolatry. And we end up making ourselves into slaves to our work, don't we? Overworking ourselves at the expense of our health, of our family, of our church, Well, it could be be something good like a romantic relationship. If I am not someone's significant other, then I'm not significant at all. But our true sense of significance, it can't come from someone other than God. Our true sense of significance comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. That God was willing to spill the blood of his own son to save us and make us his own. That's where our sense of significance comes from. You try to find it from something else, you're going to crush it. It's not meant to carry that weight. It can't. Beauty. Brains, brawn, these things can occupy controlling positions in our lives, can't they? Because look, if I look good, well, that must mean that I am good, right? I want to feel like I'm a good person. I want to feel like I'm someone to be desired, to be respected. And so we'll spend lots of time and money to look good. We'll spend lots of time and money to learn a lot. Can anyone find a sense of goodness at the gym? Lots of people try. Can anyone find a sense of goodness by reading lots of books and listening to lots of podcasts and watching lots of YouTube? Lots of people try. We are all longing for this sense of approval. And I think that's God-given. I think God built us this way because He would draw us to His Son where we could find that sense of approval. Because it is only through the life and death and resurrection of Lord Jesus that we'll find approval and acceptance. And looking for approval and acceptance in literally anything else will only leave us empty. Idol worshipers chasing the wind. And so if you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm real glad that you came to church today. I want you to know that if you're honest with yourself, I think you'll agree with me. Your whole life has been about chasing acceptance and approval. And your whole life you've been looking for acceptance and approval from other people. But underneath that, if you're being honest, you're actually looking for acceptance and approval from your creator. And friend, this is why God has drawn you into these four walls today. He wants you to know that there is one place that you can find that acceptance and approval. It is in the person of his own son, Jesus Christ. You see, the thing that removed you from that sense of acceptance and approval is your sin. And God loves sinners like us so much that He would go to the cross and He would stand in our place and He would bear the penalty of our sins in order to bring us to God where we would be united to Him and through that union, receive acceptance and approval from Him. Friend, if you're not a Christian, before you leave here today, Pick someone out of the crowd, tap them on the shoulder, and tell them you'd like to become a Christian. And they'll pray with you, begin meeting with you, and show you how you can find acceptance with your Creator. So can you see how breaking any of the nine commandments is a violation of the first commandment? Just think about the tenth commandment, you shall not covet why is it that you want what your neighbor has? Is it not because you think that what you have, what God has provided to you, isn't enough to give you that sense of control and safety and comfort and approval you're looking for? But do you think that if you had that car or that boat or that job or those kids, you would feel more like what you want to feel like? Feel like you are someone, that you are something. But that feeling of being someone or something can only come from God Himself. Well, why do we break the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not lie. Well, for the same reason. We fear that if the truth were known about us, then people wouldn't like us, they wouldn't accept us. Someone other than God someone else's acceptance and approval has become more controlling in our life. And so in that moment where you have to decide between truth and a lie, you decide that you would rather offend your heavenly father than lose face in that person standing in front of you. Because that has become more controlling in your life. Every sin is a breaking of the first commandment. Every sin fails to give God the glory He deserves. It fails to keep Him in that controlling position in our life that only He deserves. And when we try and put something other than God in the God seat, we not only dishonor God, but we destroy ourselves. And we crush the thing that we're looking to worship in the first place. If children become more central to our well-being than God, we will crush them with our expectations and drive them away. How many of you have seen this happen tragically in families' lives? If a lover becomes more central to our happiness than the Lord himself, we smother the relationship and we drive them away. And can you see how this is not at all different than a man who asks a tree log for rain? He's trying to squeeze out of that piece of wood something that wood is incapable of giving him. And isn't that what we do with our idols? the lover squeezing their significant other to get something from them that they just weren't built to give. So that's how we break the first commandment. And I I hope that you see, I hope this is landing on you in such a way that you're recognizing, well, golly, I've broken it real bad, like literally every day bad. (laughs) I'm doomed. I got nine more to go. (laughs) Was there anyone who ever looked only to God to give him things that only God can give? Was there ever a person who lived who was truly satisfied in who God is and what God has done their whole life? Well, there was this one guy. And that brings us to our final point that the demands of the first commandment dismantle us and drive us to our Deliverer. The first commandment points us to Christ. So if you have your Bibles open still, please turn to Matthew chapter 4. I want to show you something significant in the life of the Lord Jesus to illustrate to you the ways That our Lord kept the first commandment. If you're new to the Bible, that's page 809. I want you to see idolatry defeated. How Jesus kept the first commandment in our place. In our place. Matthew chapter 4 beginning at verse 8 down to 10. This is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And He said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall serve the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Well, you see what the enemy was doing, don't you? This is God the Son, come from heaven, to whom belongs all the kingdoms of this world in their glory. He was sent by His Father on a rescue mission to save hell-deserving sinners from their sin. And to redeem them by dying on the cross in their place. And the enemy tells Jesus, You don't have to do that. You can avoid that altogether. Just simply bow down and worship me. Now, notice, he didn't tell Jesus, Deny your Father and worship me only. He just said, Just add me to the mix, avoid the cross. Just go around God to give what you want. But aren't you thankful that the Lord saw straight through the enemy's lie? You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you. That's the first commandment. Christ stood where you fell. Where I fell. Where all humans fallen. And Jesus kept the first commandment perfectly. It's, it's that his father was his greatest pleasure. His father was his greatest delight, his deepest joy. And so to go around God and to get something that he wanted made zero sense. God was what he wanted. He's what I want. I can't go around him to get what I want. He's what I want. There was nothing that the enemy could give Jesus that he didn't already have in his heavenly Father. And because the Lord Jesus defeated idolatry in the wilderness and on the cross, his people, you and I, united to him by faith are not only forgiven of our idolatry but we're set free from the power it has over our lives in Christ everything that an idol would offer to you is already yours anything it offers to you is a lie Anything it offers is already yours in Christ. In Christ, you are safe. You are secure. You are approved. You are accepted. God is the good life. You don't have to obey the formula. You can get rid of the X. God equals good life. He's he's what I want. He's what I need. I have the good life. I'm in Christ. So we don't need to look to anything else to get what we want, to get what we need. So keeping the first commandment is really just about being content in Christ. It's it's finding the thing that you want out of life and tracing it back up the chain to the giver. Seeing how Christ is himself the thing you've always wanted. And so you hold on to him and squeeze out of him what you need. The apostle put it like this in Colossians chapter 3. Seek the things which are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father, set your mind on things above, not things below. So do you want acceptance? Set your mind on things above, where Christ is, because in Christ you are fully and forever accepted by your heavenly Father. And therefore, you are free from having to pursue acceptance from any man or any woman or any boss or any congregation. Do you want security in your life? Set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Because in Christ, you realize that you are fully and forever safe from anything that will ultimately harm you. And so you need not fear when the stock market crashes, when the housing market crashes, when your business goes belly up. You needn't waste time chasing those things which promise instant success and financial prosperity. Do you want beauty? Set your mind on things above where Christ is and recognize that you are the bride of Christ. And that by his death and life and resurrection, you have become made beautiful in the most beautiful way. Dressed in the very robes of Christ's own righteousness. Such that when God looks at you, he sees his son. This is my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Jesus defeated idolatry by tracing everything he wanted back up to his heavenly father and satisfying his heart there. And because he did it and because we've been united to him, listen to me, you can, you will keep The first commandment. You can. You will. Keep the first commandment. Not perfectly. But you'll keep it. All the same. And you do so. In the same way as he did. By just tracing. The thing you want. Back up to God, to Christ in heaven, and finding that thing you want is already yours. Take hold of it and squeeze it. When God occupies a central, controlling place in your life, everything changes. Your relationship to the things that you once worshiped now becomes. Right. Again. Because you're free to enjoy those things, those good things, without turning them into God things. You are free from having to place on them the weight they were never meant to bear. And your enjoyment of those good things is greater. Because there's no pressure on you to keep taking and taking and taking and taking until you squeeze the very life out of them. You're free to give. And you're free to have contentment to be in a place that says, well, if I have it, praise the Lord. If I don't have it, praise the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. All that you need is yours already in Christ. So when you look out into the vastness of space and you keep clicking on those images from the James Webb Webb Space Telescope, remember that the vastness of space is meant to show you the vastness of this God who has set his love on you. To show you the greatness of his grace and his all-satisfying love. And live your life in such a way that magnifies him when you trace your contentment to him. When you find in him all that you could ever want or need, pursue his love, forsaking all others. And rest in that this week. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Father in heaven, God of all majesty and matchless glory, we praise you for who you are and what you've done. That you would set your love on a people like us and redeem us from our idolatry. We confess, Father, that we have broken the first commandment over and over again. We've made you too small and ourselves too big. We've looked to many things to give us what only you can give. And in doing this, Father, we have dishonored you. We've been unfaithful to you. And having been united to you by your gift of faith, we stand forgiven, fully forgiven. And how grateful we are. How grateful we are to having... Jesus, now that we get to live free from the power of idolatry. And because of you, we can keep this. And because of you, we can ask you to help us keep this. Enable us to keep this. Send us your Holy Spirit to enable us to keep your commandments. To worship you in the beauty of holiness. Oh, how we long for our lives To bring honor to you. So this week, O Lord, will you deepen your people's satisfaction in your son. Give them grace. To find what they need in him. And to be free from idols. This week and every week. In Jesus' matchless name we ask. Amen. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, please stand with me. As I read over you, an assurance of pardon. And after I read it, Pastor Brent's going to come and bless us, pray for us. And after he does, we'll sing the doxology together. Psalm 32, this is your assurance of pardon. blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Pastor Brent, will you come and bless us and pray for us?